RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it's time for our Wednesday morning legal hub feature here at RCR. Nick Kearney flying solo again. Katie Ashby Coppins somewhere off in the world. We'll be hearing from her um, pretty soon, I would imagine, when she's back. Nick, good to have you on the program again. Yeah, good morning again, Paul. Good morning to uh, all of your listeners uh, on what is a not a bad Wednesday morning here in Auckland. Okay, good to hear. Though when we start talking about these cases, <laughs> I don't know how we're going to feel. Um, let's start where we kind of left off or, or one of the, uh, things we were discussing last week, and that was these, uh, UN rules. So where are we on that? Yeah. So last week we, um, discussed the, uh, UN, uh, inverted commas resolution to, uh, you know, put together a pandemic preparedness plan. Uh, and, um, there was a, you know, a few countries, uh, member states around the world who opposed it. At the time, it didn't go through the proper process at the UN. I think it was, still has to be ratified by the General Assembly. But we found out a little bit more now as to how that process to initially uh, get it to the General Assembly to ratify uh, how that process um, was undertaken. And it appears that what the what the UN uh, does is it uh, it sends these proposals out to member states. Uh, by email um, to their representatives, and uh, usually, you know, uh, a response confirming something, you know, in any part of a resolution is, you know, the way that it's moved forward. But uh, with these ones here, uh, if you stay silent and do nothing, you're deemed to have accepted it. <laughs> so, which is a bit of a it sounds like a bit of a Mickey Mouse way of going about things, but that's the I guess that's the UN. It, it can be a little bit Mickey Mouse. So uh, this, you know, uh, resolution or, or pandemic preparedness thing went out to the member states. Uh, and the 11, we talked last week about the 11 countries that uh, opposed it and weren't going to potentially vote in favour of it when it appeared again uh, in front of the General Assembly. Well, these 11 member countries have broken the silence and formally objected to the declarations that were uh, to be adopted uh, at the high-level meeting of the General Assembly. Uh, in other words, these 11 nations, you know, have said, well, we're the ones actually who did reply to the correspondence and said, no, we don't agree to the, both the process uh, and and the way in which, you know, these uh, decisions are being made. And and the interesting thing about these these 11 countries are who, basically who they are. And so just, you know, we just need to remind listeners that these are 11 countries that are, appear to be at face value in support of due process, uh, yep. uh, potentially human rights and, you know, proper constitutional uh, democratic processes at the United Nations. And these are member states were Belarus, Bolivia, Cuba, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, hmm. Eritrea, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Nicaragua, the Russian Federation, the Syrian Arab Republic, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. Wow. Yeah. So, so these member states combined together wrote a letter um, to the General Assembly or to the UN or to the Governor General of the UN or whatever he's called, uh, pointing out important flaws in the process of the negotiation of the declarations that we proposed. So, uh, you know, I think if we're kind of sitting back here on the other side of the world 
um, approving of the, I guess, the behaviour, if that's the word, or approving of the conduct of countries such as uh, Cuba, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Russian Federation, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, uh, and the like. Uh, they appear to be at the moment uh, our, our good, our bedfellows. So, what have we have we have we put our hand up and said, "Yep, we're we're in on this." When we're obviously not part of that list, yeah. so we're not part of that list. I, I, well, if not part of the list, I, and we do have a uh, obviously a, a representation on the UN. Uh, then I can only assume that we stayed silent, and our silence was acceptance uh, of the proposal going forward to the General Assembly. How could our government do that? I guess you'd have to ask our government. or, or Because no one government. asked us, right? This is a huge, this has huge consequences potentially. No one's, it's not being put to any referendum or or uh, there's been no, I haven't even seen it in the news. No, and the, the way that these things, uh, as we discussed last week, these things tend to be applied as they get ratified at the UN General Assembly. And uh, they're not, these ratifications aren't binding on uh, on New Zealand law because, you know, it's, unless it's ratified in the uh, New Zealand Parliament, it becomes part of our law. Uh, but they're kind of heavily, I guess, persuasive, if that's the way to put it. Uh, and the, one of the ones that um, has been, you know, the most controversial recently was the, um, the one that uh, spoke in favour of Indigenous rights. And I, and I forget the full... Yeah. Full day of it, but of which course, is kind of why we're where we are now with yeah, yeah, no governments, three waters, it, all that exactly. And so, arising from that um, ratification, uh, if that's the way to put it, I mean, I think it was, I think it was John Key actually. I think it was his government that, um, when he was prime minister, it was his foreign affairs minister who that might have been. I'm not sure who would have stood up in the. I think it was where, Peter Sharples who fronted that. Uh, correct, with Peter Sharples, yeah, that yeah. would be right. And so it came back to our, well, in, in roundabout ways, I suppose, came back to our parliament or our government when John Key was prime minister. And he at the time said, oh, look, it kind of means nothing. You know, it's not... Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Kind yeah, of, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's not, it's not, not binding on New Zealand, so no great drama. Well, if it doesn't mean anything, then why are we, you know, adopting it in, do in documents like a Tūkura? Uh, and other ones. So, so from small acorns do big trees grow, right? So we just have to be uh, extremely vigilant uh, on these sorts of um, uh, matters. And I, as I say, I just find it quite interesting who, at the moment, uh, our common bedfellows are. Uh, when I read out that uh, that list of countries, but, but they're not our bedfellows. That's the well, thing. He, well, well, he wouldn't think so. It's ironic. Uh, yeah, I know. Or, you'd be or, right. Ordinarily, they're the ones that appear to be standing up for you know democracy and. Well, what uh, do they know that that we don't seem to know? I don't think really so much. Uh, you know what? What do they know? I just think they're uh, suspicious of the suspicious West. of of being excluded from a process that you know they find a little bit uh, objectionable. I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're sitting in a, I've sat round, you know, boards and. and oh, so when I'm excluded from a process, so because I'm the way I'm taking it is that they're rejecting this way of doing it. So you just, if you, you, you know, you casually, if you don't say anything, you're you're opted in. You're assumed to be supporting it. Yeah, uh, well, that, yeah, that's right. So, so the, the, they wrote a letter. These uh, member states, those living countries, and one of the. One of the uh, parts of the letter said, our delegations are convinced that this is no way to handle multilateral and intergovernmental negotiations well, on issues true. of great yeah. relevance. 
of great relevance for the international community, particularly for developing countries. Yeah, okay, I've got and, it. And you, you can't hang with that, really, can you? Um, no. Um, <laughs> you would expect a, a different set of countries to be on that list, I would have thought. But yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point. I'm, yeah. I'm getting used to this upside-down world, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there's that. Um, I think another thing that would be good to to talk about, and I know that it's it's on your mind. So, and that is um, what is happening in Canada. It's been a lot coming out of Canada recently. Uh, what with the um, the Ukrainian Nazi being uh, applauded in the Canadian Parliament, but this is another step forward to moder- modernize their broadcasting framework, and it kind of feels like this is a model that will probably be following. So what's been happening in Canada? Canada has a, a commission called the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission. Uh, and it's, in, in short, it's called the CRTC. Uh, well, just a few days ago, it, it was it made advances on its regulatory, uh, regulatory plan to modernise that country's uh, broadcasting framework to ensure um, online streaming services made, uh, and here's the key words, made meaningful contributions to Canadian and Indigenous content. So uh, a few months ago, probably six months ago, it launched its first round of public consultation, uh, a very similar way to what we've seen and we've discussed here on this show in regards to what the DIA is doing here yeah. in regards to its uh, potential framework around um, online online uh, broadcasting and, and censorship thereof. Um, well, it, it's its first public consultation in Canada examined all, you know, evidence and what have you, um, and it's now issued two decisions. Well, the first decision it's decided um, on is that it has set out which online streaming services need to provide information about their activities in Canada, to the government, obviously, um, that uh, you know, ones that offer broadcasting content, uh, and they earn uh, $10 million or more in annual revenue, and they need to register, uh, register with the New Zealand government, uh, not New Zealand government, the Canadian government uh, by by a date in November. The registration uh, by these online um, platforms, uh, we're told, uh, reading the information out of Canada that it collects, uh, the registration documentation collects uh, basic information only, is only required once, and can can be completed in just a few easy steps. Oh, yeah. They're going to make it easy for them, right? Yeah, so it doesn't matter potentially what platform you're on. It's um, what you can earn and the size of your subscriber base. One thing we've learned from, one thing we've learned from our Tech Tuesdays is that metadata surrounding a, I don't know, subscriber, even if it's a um, false name or whatever, there's still metadata that can create a pattern that can be, that can help understand the user. So, you know, it's not just the name that you've, um, you're registered with or subscribe with, it's the metadata that comes around or comes with that listing or that interaction, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So the locations, dates, yeah. Other other visitations, so you can build up a pattern. AI can build up a pattern of what oh. sort of person you are. Hundred percent. What sort of people are listening to that channel? Um, what, what's you know if they're interacting with the provider on comments on, on the site? What yep. sort of comments? I mean, we saw this, of course, 
in a smaller de detail um, through what was that um, uh, in the American election a couple of elections ago with that um, platform out of the UK. If you remember, they were they were. Um, oh yeah, the Cambridge um, Analytica. Analytica, Cam that's it. Cambridge Analytica. So it looks like you know you've, you've got a much more advanced model of, of Cambridge Analytica and. Um, the, so the, you're just reading it here again here. The conditions for online streaming services operating in Canada, uh, which require them to provide the CRTC with content and subscribership information, take effect immediately. So, Whoa, um, okay. yeah. So, you know, um, it's it, it's a watch the space, I suppose. It's 10 million is a lot in revenue. Um, you know, how, how where they got that number from, who, who knows? But I, I guess, you know, we've discussed on this uh, channel uh, a couple of times over the last four to six weeks what the DIA is intending to do with the regulation of uh, online media platforms here and uh, this sort of um, uh, re regulatory regime could, well, it could be, you know, applied here in the very near future as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a chilly wind. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess one aspect of it is, you know, if you've got, well, nothing nothing to hide, nothing to fear, I, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm personally uh, reluctant at, um, I don't trust governments at all, I don't trust politicians, and I, I'm quite reluctant to hand over, uh, you know, uh, my data um, to, to government agencies. Well, what it could do is, that, again, it's a chilling effect. If you are a potential subscriber to a streaming service, let's say, and um, and um, this data, or you have a um, a worry that this data could end up in those hands, then you might just hold off subscribing. So you, you create these the, these chilling effect sort of moments, you know, and it distorts how the business is done. I mean, if you were an, a, a Canadian trucker, you wouldn't trust these people as far as you could throw them. No, and, and look, and if I was, you know, to um, be a little bit, think a little bit more deeply about it, I just wonder how much, you know, your your mainstream media platforms have had a, um, an input into some of this stuff because they're badly affected and we see their, their readership and their subscribership and everything has been affected badly over the last sort of five or ten years. Uh, and I just wonder if, if they, you know, we know here, of course, in New Zealand that there's the Public Journalism Interest Fund or whatever you want to call it, and, you know, it had a, a budget of 50 or $70 million given out to uh, media companies on certain conditions that they wrote certain types of articles uh, or, you know, promoted certain types of, of views. And you just wonder whether some of the mainstream media who are struggling now in terms of revenue and and business models, thinking, well, if we can't put this in place and make it a lot harder. Yeah, we win. We, we, we sort of pull out of the nosedive a bit. Yeah, yeah, we pull out, exactly. We pull out of the nosedive a bit, good way of putting it, and we can gain some of our credibility and our readership back, perhaps. And, and if we're compliant to government, we've got nothing to worry about. So we, Yeah, we, well, the government's yeah. helping us. They're giving us money to do it. Yeah. Gosh, okay. All right, um, let's um, come home now. And uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with uh, prenups? Or um, or vaccine, what exemptions and everything surrounding that? Oh, let, go? Let, let's start with prenups, if, if you put it that way, and we'll finish off with uh, the vaccine exemptions, the Section Twelve A exemptions, uh, shortly. Okay. So, uh, an interesting um, 
decision out of our Supreme Court that you know could affect hundreds of thousands of people living in uh, relationships as uh, as we uh, speak on this final Wednesday morning. It yeah. came out. It came out a week or so back from our Supreme Court, and the basic situation is there was a man called uh, Mr. Sutton and his girlfriend called uh, Mrs. Ms. Bell. Uh, they met in July 2003. Uh, Mr. Sutton had previously been divorced and separated. Uh, he got a um, did a deal with his ex-wife, if, if that's the way to put it, separated from her. Uh, it took took a fair chunk of the relationship assets and gave his ex-wife the other, the rest of it, I presume. Yep. But he he started again, um, so to speak, with his um, separate property. He met uh, Miss, Miss Bell in July 2003. Uh, at the time, uh, he lived with two flatmates in a property that he owned personally in Auckland here. Um, and that property was his former matrimonial home. Uh, this uh, this lady, Ms. Bell, uh, and I've got to call her that, I'm sorry, Paul, because I don't have her first name. No, that's okay, and it sounds yeah. respectful too. Good. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Uh, it moved into the, uh, the Point Ship property uh, in early 2004, so they met in July 2003. She moved in early 2004, uh, initially as a flatmate. Right, yeah. Uh, she had her own bedroom, but occasionally would sleep uh, in Mr. Sutton's bedroom. Uh, by the end of 2004, uh, Mr. Sutton transferred that property into a, into a trust with not only Ms. Bell's knowledge, but her uh, her suggestion and her um, assistance almost. She wrote do, do we know what she did for a job? Did she have some legal background or training? Or no, I, I, I have no, I have no idea. We no. don't know? Okay. No, right. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, Ms. Bell actually at the time uh, suggested that Mr. Sutton put the, put the property into a trust uh, to ensure that it was considered separate property and not a family home, considering you know he'd got it from his previous marriage and she didn't want him to buy part of it, etc. She wrote, uh, and this email was produced uh, in in the in the in the decision from the court. Wrote quite a long email to him, um, almost extolling him, you know, to do so and encouraging him to do so, and uh, it was a good idea. So, why, why do I feel that suspicious already? I'm sorry, that's just me. Well, back in those, we're coming to we're coming to how this uh, has panned out. But back in two thousand and four, uh, that would not have been a major um, consideration of the court. Gotcha. Okay. So, no, I don't think there's any sort of ulterior motive on her behalf there. Uh, they continued to live in that Point Chevrolet property uh, until they separated in two thousand and twelve. So, was that nine years ago? Yeah, that's a good good stretch. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, and, and then she she actually then claimed that his transfer of that property into a trust was done with the intent to defeat her claim under the Property Relationships Act, which entitled you know the Property Relationships Act essentially says that the family home is relationship property. Now I know why I felt that there, I was feeling suspicious. It sounds yeah. like a kind of engineered setup to me over a period of time, but okay, potentially, but. Um, <laughs> the, the, the family home, uh, the family home is always uh, in the law relationship property, just the way it is. Uh, however, if the family home is not owned by one of the parties, in, in this case, it was owned by a trust, uh, and the trust is not a party to the relationship, of course, because the relationship is between Mr. Mr. Yep. Sutton and Ms. Bell. Then theoretically, you can say, uh, as a defend, defending the claim, 
it's it's not a it's not relationship property because it's not owned by me it's owned by somebody else in other words the trustees of the trust there's a certain section of the act the legislation that says that yeah well that's fine but if you dispose of it in that way with the intent to defeat uh, a claim of the other party in this case miss bell the court can unwind that 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 disposition and give her essentially half the property but but um, usually, it could that that disposition or that transfer or that unwinding of that could only be done um, um, when you know that was done during the relation, essentially during the relationship. Okay, so you're in a de facto relationship, and the de facto relationship by law really has to be uh, of of three years duration as well. Yeah, and but were so, they visiting each other's bedrooms? Before yeah, yeah, yeah. this and, was yeah, done, yeah. and they'd actually been almost living together in the same house for about. Nine okay, months. well, I can see how you could say that 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 he did this to to do it, and so he could have some certainty that he wouldn't take any, you know, um, uh, financial hit or damage if the thing broke up. Yeah, and well, he argued that because the de facto relationship with Miss Bell did not uh, commence by November two thousand and four when he transferred the property into the trust, because the, the law says that a de facto relationship can only really commence once you've been together for three years. Right. So at that stage, okay. you've been together for less, maybe nine months, maybe a year tops. Uh, so we argued initially that because the de facto relationship with her uh, had not commenced uh, by the time he made that transfer into the trust, um, her rights under under the Act, under the law, uh, did not come into existence and he therefore could not have intended uh, to avoid them. Well, yeah. that, that was his argument in the family court. Now, the family court disagreed. Uh, the High Court disagreed. The uh, the uh, Court of Appeal uh, also disagreed. Uh, and so it went all the way to uh, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has also uh, disagreed, and which is quite, which is quite, um, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say shocking, but it is quite interesting. And well, well, how is that explained? Because it doesn't seem like a natural, a naturally... <sighs> Natural justice or anything, you know? No, no. so I guess reading between the lines, um, the Supreme Court is essentially um, essentially saying that um, if, you are, if, if you are dating, so pre previously just dating somebody and going out with somebody wasn't really classified as uh, being in a de facto relationship with that person. But now with, with this decision, it's kind of made that murky ground between dating, um, a, a dating relationship. Well, they were doing more than dating. Oh, for sure, sure, sure. Dating um, is going out and having nice meals. They're in each other's bed. They're in the sack. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, okay. Well, let's 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 go one step further and say the transition from a sexual relationship to a de facto relationship. So you can, but by law, you can be in a uh, a sexual relationship with somebody. But not be uh, in a de facto relationship. Yeah. Okay. And, and the distinction between the two is, is a little bit, a uh, little bit grey, but it, it's quite clear uh, because you know, think of uh, you know a, a couple of eighteen, nineteen, and twenty-year-olds, you know, going out and uh, and having a, a you know relationship and, and enjoying their lives and what have you. And nobody would ever think that they're going to the movies on a Friday night and. Doing what else they do? There's 19, 20 year old university students. No, nobody would ever contemplate that they're in a de facto relationship. You know, no, of they're course. Just, but but that, that, there's yeah, an yeah. age signal to that too. Um, how do we know the age of these people? 
Uh, no, no, we don't. Uh, no, I don't know the age of people. But, okay. But I'm what, fairly what, mature by the sounds of the guy anyway because he's accumulated wealth and stuff like that. So Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what, what the Supreme Court has, has said is that um, if a disposition of property is made in circumstances where the parties are in a, a romantic or sexual relationship and or are living together but do not have a clear and present intention to become parties to a de facto relationship, then we do not consider it would be right to infer an intention uh, to uh, claim uh, rights that may uh, arise. So what, what, the, what that basically, they've, they've used a double negative uh, by saying that, you know, um, if they do not have a clear and present intention to become parties to a de facto relationship, then uh, the, the disposal of that property into a trust is absolutely fine. So that turning that turning that test on its head and turning it into a, a, a positive thing, um, the corollary of that is that uh, if you uh, that the parties do have a clear and present intention to become parties to a de facto relationship at some time in the future, that disposition to that trust can then be unwound. Now, you can see why this might cause uh, a few alarm bells amongst people listening to this, because how could you? You know, I mean, you you start dating some um, woman or some man. You you know, this applies not just to married couples; it applies to same-sex couples. It applies to de facto couples of the opposite sex, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, you can you can be have you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and go out and stay at each other's house. Yes, you could be living in the same house together. She had a different room in the house uh, as a flatmate, but she was always in Mister Mister Sutton's bed by the look of it quite often. Anyway. Um, but but the, the test you know of whether you are in a de facto relationship is an outward looking test. It's basically a test of to the outside world what does it look like you guys are doing. Yeah. Okay? And yep. and it doesn't matter whether you are living together or not. If the outside world perceives basically the two of you as as a de facto couple, you're a de facto couple. Whether you're living together, uh, having um, a sexual relationship uh, or, or kind of not. Uh, but now we've we've turned it on the head a little bit by saying well you know. Uh, um, if you have a clear and present intention to to be in a de facto relationship, even if you aren't, aren't at the moment, um, what you what you did uh, six months ago in terms of transferring property out of your name to somebody else could well be challenged. This doesn't seem right, you know, and I'm sure you know there there are occasions where you know maybe one one party in the relationship's treated the other badly and, the, and and they want to get their pound of flesh and all that. I get that. But just on the timeline, doesn't seem right. What sort of precedent does this then well, put up there? Look, and instinctively, I, I would agree. So when I first, you know, about a week ago, and I first saw the headline and I started reading the decision, I went, oh, my God, this, this can't be right. Um, what, what have they done? Uh, but the... The interesting thing is that uh, he, he lost in the family court. He lost in the high court on appeal. He appealed to the court of appeal and lost, and he went to the Supreme Court and lost again as well. So there, it's not like there has been, you know, topsy-turvy um, overruling of, of lower courts by the court above them. Uh, all four courts in this situation have uh, have ruled uh, against against poor Mr. Bell. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, very interesting. Well, what does that tell us then? Um, that the courts are consistent. <laughs> well, consistently wrong, um, some might say. Well, um, well it, it, I think it tells us that, you know, um, uh, people have to be careful. Uh, and, you know, 
lawyers are, sadly or not, but lawyers actually um, might uh, evoke uh, an invoke a response from listeners. I'm not sure, but we, we kind of um, our business can rely to an extent on people's misery, you see, or, or, or yeah. personal personal situations of couples. And uh, this this couple here did not have a, a prenuptial relationship, you know, a, a contracting out agreement, and they didn't have one. I think because uh, well, I, I don't know actually why, but I, I can only assume Mr. Sutton thought I don't need one because I've transferred that my main assets, uh, this property, into a trust. Um, I got legal advice at the time, which would have been correct at the time. You know, that, yeah. no, no. If you do that now and you're not in a de facto relationship, you yeah, can go protect, for it, mate. Yeah, protect yeah. almost all of it. Okay, and he did that. And sadly, um, you know, this was in 2003. He got together with this woman. Uh, 20 years later, the law uh, is a funny beast. It can um, evolve and adapt, and this is what's happened. It's come back to bite them. The, so, um, the so obvious – yeah. sorry, the, the question I, I would say is, if it was the other way around, would it have been different? That, that, that's a good question, and uh, I, I don't want to ha- hazard a guess on no, that. No, no, I, I don't expect you to, but, you no. know, that's you, that's something – Well, you would, you would hope the law is is impartial. Uh, to you know, to either gender or sex, you, you would hope so that it would go the other way if um, if you know that was the way it was. And, and, you know, we we discussed again on the show uh, some weeks ago that um, situation of the tripartite couple out of West Auckland. Yes, that was an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. there were three of them tripartite. all together. Yeah. Tripartite. Yeah. yeah, I think there were two two ladies and a man. They all married to each other. I think it's exactly. Yeah, that's right. It was uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Polyamorous okay. is that the one? I, I think so. The, yeah, yeah, word, yeah. But it was an unusual combination of even that. So yeah, exactly. And they all broke up, and they all claimed each other's share of of, of assets, and it was quite yeah. So yeah. that's the, the weird, wonderful world of law can produce some uh, interesting, um, you know, uh, uh, things to talk about when you come home from the day. And this, this certainly is one of them. I'm sure there'll be a few views uh, sent through on that. And and let's yeah. wind up on this because this will be of interest to many members of our audience. And these are the um, the um, exemptions, and I think you mentioned the Act um, that uh, sort of uh, sits over that. So, what do we need to say about this? Yeah. So, um, a, an uh, official information act request uh, was was made uh, by somebody back in August to the. Um, I think Ministry of, of Health, I think it was. And let's just have a look here. Um, look, it doesn't really matter. Um, Ministry of Health, I think. And yep. the, the RAA request made in July uh, this year uh, was based around the COVID-19 public health response brackets, vaccination and closed brackets, order 2021. Now, under section uh, or clause or section 12A of that act, um, people were uh, allowed to apply for exemptions to being vaccinated. And those exemption applications went to uh, the minister, I think, uh, Mr Hipkins, and perhaps even the ministry, Dr Bloomfield himself. So someone made an OAA request in July uh, saying that, look, there were operational exemptions available for those who were uh, not, um, not going to be vaccinated, um, and there was a process under under uh, under the um, exemption under under clause 12a. Would you please provide this information? How many requests were received 
and how many were approved by the ministry. Uh, and uh, that's the Ministry uh, of Health. So, um, and so for anybody, for example, if, if um, prison officers uh, or custom workers or any other business basically wanted to apply for blanket uh, exemptions on this vaccination order, they had to apply to the Ministry of Health. Um, so the OAO request came back and said, well, from 13 November 2021 to 26 September 2022, there were 478 applications for what they say significant service disruption exemptions. Uh, and what these are, um, SSDs they're called, um, so you could only apply under that clause 12A if, for an exemption, if you could show or prove that um, there would be a significant supply chain disruption or an SSD if the worker was not able to perform their role due to not being unvaccinated. Okay, uh, so uh, the SSD uh, or significant service disruptions. So basically, we'll go back and a total of 478 applications for significant service disruption exemptions, SSDs, were received. Uh, the OAA then goes on to say that 103 applications were granted, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, 103 applications were granted from a total of 478 applications. And it goes on to say uh, that, uh, and this covered approximately 11,005 health workers. Uh -huh. Just yep. health health workers. Now we don't know uh, who these health workers uh, were, but where it gets interesting is that um, there were 478 applications. An application could include more than one person. For example, um, uh, if a, a business, um, a health worker business, decided that all of its, and we, let's say it's a rest home, for example, uh, all of the rest home employees uh, needed to have one of these significant service disruption exemptions. Uh, the, the rest home itself would make one application. Right. And say, you know, our employees, and probably would have to name them, here they are, uh, and they all require to uh, be exempt uh, under this SSD category. So they received 478 of those applications. We don't know how many actual people, uh, you know, were, um, the number of people were in those applications, just 478 applications, and 103 granted. And again, from that 103, um, you know, we don't know, for example, there might have been an organisation that had you know, 500 employees. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that granting of the exemption might have applied to all of those 500 people. We don't know. But it did say the OAO request, uh, uh, response, I mean, did say that 103 were granted, um, covering approximately 11,005 workers. So, so there's a little bit of um, number fudging but potentially going on in, in this response because it's not clear, and I'm sure we're going to follow up on this, or somebody will. Uh, it's not clear uh, whether that 11,005 workers were the total number of people that were listed in the applications, and therefore uh, only 103 of those people uh, received 
the exemption. Uh, or whether of those 103 uh, applications that were granted, that covered 11,000 people, right. 11,000 health workers. Now, okay. if, it's, if it's the latter, then we have essentially, um, well, essentially, we, you know, it may be that we have a mass uh, situation here of significant service disruption exemptions uh, of health workers against you know the COVID vaccine and you and you have to and, and these these were granted these exemptions were granted by the uh, the minister of COVID COVID minister and minister of health of course who is the current prime minister Chris CFP who's yeah. as we speak isolating through COVID yes. double vaxxed and fully boosted so well, yeah no, no double vaxxed yeah. fully boosted and yeah exactly yeah. uh take the vitamin C and all that and um so um yeah so that's an interesting bit of information that's come to light, um, you know, is it today, we don't know exactly uh, how um, these numbers are made up. But if it transpires, of course, that um, this number of 11,005 workers all received in, in the health, and it's said, as I say, in the health industry or our health workers, yeah. um, being health workers, we don't know, are they doctors, are they nurses, are they... Are they bureaucrats working in the ministry? Are they, you know, what what are they? We don't know. But if it, it transpires that 11,000 health workers uh, were given exemptions by um, Minister Hipkins, then I think there's I think there's a bit of a scandal here, to be honest. We, we need to know who those people are very specifically, don't we? Uh, and we also need to know uh, how the, the numbers, how they're broken down, because that analysis and that interpretation could be, and I have to say, could be completely incorrect. Okay. Yeah, but but if but, it's if it's what we don't want it to be, how do you explain all the? Because we've spoken to heaps of them. Either they're not telling us the full story, or they were mandated out at the frontline level. So that seemed to have happened. So who is being exempted? If it's yeah. the thing we don't want, precisely. And as I say, it may well be that of the one hundred and three were granted, covering eleven thousand and five workers. That may mean that of the applications, there were 11,005 names on there. Yeah. Uh, and and of those 11,005 names of people, only 103 of them were granted exemptions. Well, they wouldn't be rest home workers. Well, I, I think well, what's immediately apparent to me when, when I think of it that way is that if, if 11,005 uh, names of people were put on these uh, exemption applications, how much time and effort has gone into at ministry bureaucrat level? Vetting them. Vetting them all. And, 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 and you can't go, do that, Matt. You can't do that number. You can't do it. It, it, it would take years, right? Uh, yeah. And cross cross analysis of all the information that supposedly there's 11,000 people. So they've been granting bulk exemptions. Uh, well, it appears that that's what it appears. Yeah. And, and okay, so so if they are, we need to know who they are because if they're not frontline health workers, how the hell did they qualify? Well, and more importantly, why why were, why were these people, um, you know, what, potentially eleven thousand, maybe only one hundred and three? We don't know. Uh, why were they, uh, you know, um, subject to exemptions when the rest of the country was told to, um, you know? Get boosted, get vaxxed, you know. Uh, don't be a, you know, um, don't be a leper or whatever. And they had vaxathons, and we had Mr. Bloodfield, and you know, we were told that this is what we have to do for the good of the country. 
etc., etc., etc. On the other hand, we've potentially got a large number of, of government officials who um, were given exemptions from it all. Under this category, what was it, SSD? Is that what you said it was? Yeah, SSD, yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose someone else would have to, to, to make these inquiries, but we don't know if there are any other sectors. Okay, these are health workers. What about wharf workers or transport workers? We're, we're not aware if there's any anything of this scale in those other areas, are we? Not, not at the moment, no. no. Yeah. Well, not that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah, it might be out there, but okay, that's... <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Someone, we got to keep digging. Well, someone's got to keep digging on that one. I, sure. I can kind of smell something there potentially. I don't know. Well, it, it, it's it's certainly idea for someone to um, to carry on with, you know, a bit more digging of that information for sure. As always, it's never dull, Nick. Never dull. In the oh, law. you know what are the what, what's that? You know, the police say better work stories. Well, you know, the law's got some pretty good work stories too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another fascinating program. Thanks for coming on, Nick. We'll um, we'll do it all again next week. Nick Kearney and Legal Hub here at RCR. We'll see you next week, Nick. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. See you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.